My name is Nancy and I'm an alcoholic. Hi. Um, is this okay? Should I move it? Or is everybody okay? Down for you so you yeah. Okay, thank you. I'm always on my toes. <laughs> <laughs> Genevieve, thank you for asking me to speak. And Nancy, thank you for speaking. And Trina came with me. You know, Alcoholics Anonymous really is cool because I moved to Seal Beach about three, three years ago from Minnesota, where I had been for 31 years. And I just started going to AA meetings and I met these two nice ladies and they're my good friends now. You know, you can go anywhere in the world and just go into AA and you have instant friends. Some of them you like, some you don't, but I mean, you will have instant friends. And I'm just so happy to be here and I'm so touched watching the chips and the hugs and, and, and um, you know, that it's this, the new people, you know, I, I kind of hope this is your first time around. You just, you can't imagine what you're in store for, but the hugging. And I was thinking when I was new, I didn't want anyone to touch me. And I remember being new one time and well, I was, you know, when I was new and all of a sudden halfway through the meeting, I thought, oh no, we have to hold hands during the Lord's prayer. And then I'd be looking at Oh no, I have to hold hands with that lady. I don't want to. I mean, it's, it would be like creepy to me. And one time, like a lady just put her arm on the back of my chair and I couldn't even listen anymore. It's like, <laughs> don't touch me. But um, I don't know what, what that's all about. But I, um, and I, I know when reading in one of the readings, I don't know what kind of alcoholic I am really. Um, I came, I'm, Got sober in 1971, and that's a long time ago. However, I'm, I'm an alcoholic, and I'm still an alcoholic, and I still need to be here. I cannot leave. I don't want to leave. I still continue to learn new things every day to, you know, peace and freedom that I feel sometimes, sometimes not. You know, there's still a lot that goes on in my head. And that's not good. That's why I'm here. That's why I'm still really active in Alcoholics Anonymous. I love it. But um, I grew up in the San Fernando Valley. And um, I was born in Los Angeles. And I used to um, cruise Van Nuys Boulevard. There's like movies about cruising Van Nuys Boulevard, Bob's Big Boy. That's what we did on Wednesday night, in and out, in and out, in and out, drinking. But I have um, six brothers and sisters, two older brothers, three younger brothers, and my sister's the youngest, and we're all alcoholics. Um, I'm not saying, I mean, they say they're alcoholics. My father died of alcoholism. We were Catholics. We went to Catholic school, of course, and um, it was kind, kind of hard to get alcohol in my house because so many alcoholics. And um, <laughs> one time, I mean, my father had a built-in beer keg. I mean, my father went to work. And, um, you know, we went to school and we tried to be sort of normal. I, but my father had a built-in beer keg and in the extra refrigerator we had in the garage. And when I was just like 14 years old or so, um, I would save up big empty jars during the week. And then I would sneak into the garage and fill them with beer and put the beer in my closet. I didn't care that it was warm and flat when I drank it, you know, but I just started drinking when I was like that age. And here's the thing that I have come to realize in Alcoholics Anonymous. I, um, 
I could not live without alcohol. So just about every single day I had alcohol or something. And when I quit drinking, you know, it took me, I was in for like a rude awakening. I didn't know how to act. I didn't know how to think. I didn't know how to feel. I didn't know what I was supposed to do. I'm an, I'm a grown up. I was about 26, 27 years old, 26. I think when I got sober, I was a wife and a mother. I had these three little boys. I had, I was ill-equipped to live life. I, I had no clue how to do all of this. So my whole life, I really just, I depended on alcohol. I didn't know what it was doing for me. It's only like when I look back and I know in high school, I know it was my, I knew I had to give a speech. And so um, I had a little flask. Well, it was not little, like this was in the olden days, but it looked, it was supposed to look like a transistor radio in a leather case with those knobs on the side, right? It was like big. And the, the, my alcohol was inside the leather case. And so I went and drank before I got called on to give my speech. And I gave a really good speech and I was pounding on the podium. So, you know, alcohol gave me courage and it just, it, it just got me through my life until I, the day came when I had to quit drinking. But um, so it was kind of wild growing up in my family. And one time I know I went to the kitchen cupboard, nobody was around. And there was a big bottle of vodka up there. And I looked around, nobody was around. And I got it down and I opened it up and I took a big drink and it was pure water already. Somebody in my, <laughs> I mean, that's, it was hard to get alcohol in my house and when you're young, but I had babysitting jobs and I took, I took whatever I wanted out of people's houses and I took their alcohol and anything else that appealed to me. And um, I paid hitchhikers to buy alcohol for me and things like that. So, you know, it's only when I got sober that I'm able to look back and kind of put this piece it together, you know? And my brothers and I were wild. They were the two older ones and myself. And, and we would get in terrible fights. And when my parents tried to go out on, you know, for the evening and they, they took one car and that left one car at home. And all three of us had a key made to that car. And we, we would just fight over, and I didn't even have a license. I don't think they did either, but we would take the car. And um, one time I got in the car and I drove away and it was making this horrible noise. And one of them had already like dropped the transmission and just left it there. So I just backed it up and, and left it there for the next person too. But we would get in big fights, things would be broken. My parents would come home. The police would always be at our house. And, um, but they were, we all went to Catholic school and the police doubled as coaches at our school. So they knew my family and they would kind of keep us out of trouble. But my, my poor parents really put up with a lot. My dad was an alcoholic. He died when he was 53 years old. And I was the really so fortunate because I was already in AA for six months when my father died. So I got to find out that we have a disease because my mother, um, God bless her, she, she went to one Al-Anon meeting and she found out you don't get to talk about us, that you work on yourself and that didn't, she didn't like that. So <laughs> she, she just wanted to fix us and take care of us. But, um, and so she always yelled at my father and said it was his fault that we were all alcoholics. 
But I got, I was in AA for six months. And so I got to find out that we do have a disease and it's not our fault, but there is a solution. There's something we can do about it. I got to take my father to meetings and, and um, he read the big book and I got to sit in the backyard with my father and he told me some of his deep, dark secrets, which really weren't that deep and dark, but to him they were. You know how we all have those? I sure did when I came in. There were things I was never gonna tell anybody. And then you're all up here at the podium saying them out loud in front of the whole room. And so, you know, in time, you know, everybody knew my deep, dark secrets too, but, um, and, I, and I don't have any anymore, but, so, so I got to sit in the backyard and my father, you know, got to tell me these things. And so, so uh, when I was 15 years old, I, um, <clears throat> you know, I just wanted to be noticed and loved and, and, you know, it was hard to get attention in my house. I wanted a boyfriend. I wasn't like a girly girl, like feminine girl. I was a tomboy. And so my girlfriends had boyfriends, but I didn't have a boyfriend. One time I gave myself a hickey with the vacuum hose. So they would, they would think I had a boyfriend. But so as if they didn't already think I had a boyfriend, I ended up pregnant. And I, nobody knew I had a boyfriend, but I ended up pregnant. I'll tell you what happened. So, um, <laughs> so I, um, I was 15 years old. I was barely 15. And there was a stable across the street from my house. And I loved the horses. And I was always up at the stable hanging out and flirting with those cowboys. And so the horseshoer who lived up there in this little shack, um, he dared me to sneak out of my house in the middle of the night. And I cannot turn down a dare. Almost to this day, I cannot turn down a dare. I have to be very careful. And, and um, so I... Um, climbed out my window in the middle of the night. That's really hard to do. And there's like so many people living in one tiny house, but we're very clever. And I worked it all out, you know, and I got out the window and I went up to the little shack where this guy lived. And I guess that we had sex because I ended up pregnant. That was the first time in my life I had sex. I was in Catholic school. The God that I had learned about up to that point was a punishing God. And I was afraid of the God that I had learned about. So the thing with this pregnancy was I didn't really talk to my mother. I had no friends to talk to. And I just wished it would go away. I used to go to Pacific Ocean Park and ride on the roller coaster and hope that this thing would go away. And um, eventually my parents, I knew that they found out, they suspected. So I ran away from home for a couple of days. And then I went back and faced the music and they... Um, I want to keep this up here. So, and they, um, listen, this was back in 1960. And this was very bad in 1960. And it was very bad when it just didn't happen. And I was in Catholic school. And, and so they sent me away to live with um, somebody, a family and um, that I didn't know. And they were ashamed and it was a disgrace to my family. And so they just shipped me off right away to go away and have this baby and give him up for adoption. And then I came back eventually and I went to a different high school. And right away I found the people that drank like I did at this other high school. And in that high school I went to, there were like 
um, different groups of people. Some of the girls ratted their hair real big and put bobby pins in their hair. And the other ones had like long blonde pretty hair and they wore a certain kind of clothes. So one week I would do the hair thing and try to fit in with that group. I was just always trying to fit in with some group because I never felt like I did fit in. So I did find the people who drank like I did. And um, I always got in trouble because people dared me to do things and I had to do them. And um, in my high school annual that I still have, it says to crazy Nancy, don't drink too much over the summer. And people would call me crazy and I think I like that. So um, if, hello, it's time for take your laundry out or something. I don't know, <laughs> alarm, but um, you know, I got off on that to crazy Nancy. So I acted more crazy because I liked it. And, and so when it came time for high school graduation, I wasn't allowed to, and I didn't get good grades either. I really didn't care at all. My friends did my test papers for me and things like that, but, but I wasn't allowed to do any of the functions that the seniors did. And my friends, Carol and Paul and I sat behind a gas station that night. I was in my mother's 59 Chevy. It's a big 50, white Chevy with big fins, you know, and um, we were, we just had pints of vodka and we just sat back behind the gas station and drank and probably made fun of the kids that were graduating because, you know, we're cool behind the gas station, right? So then I went home, I was very drunk and I was throwing up on myself all the way home. And, and, um, and I really, you know, from that time on, I, I just wandered through life, I believe. I'm never had, having any direction or guidance or goals or anything. I just, whatever came in front of me, I did it. And, and, and always drank in, until I came here. So as I said, I came here and I had a husband and three little boys. I did, I got a job in a dental office after high school. I was the dental assistant, the bookkeeper, the cleaner, x-ray person, whatever. And I did everything and I did so much work that I thought that I should get more money. But the, I was afraid to ask the dentist to pay me more money because that's a hard question to ask anybody. Could I have a raise? But um, so I was the bookkeeper. So I just gave myself a raise, but I, <laughs> I didn't get it pre-approved. So, um, you know, when I came in here, I found out, you know, I did things like embezzling, but I thought, well, it wasn't that much money. I thought embezzling is like, $100,000. It wasn't that much. But anyway, I did stuff like that. And in that office, we had, um, I am definitely an alcoholic, but whenever there was anything else around that might help me out, I would take handfuls of it home and keep it just for safekeeping. Also, I smoked marijuana. In 1970, I smoked marijuana. Do you know what happened to you when you smoked marijuana in 1970? You got caught. You went to prison. I'm not kidding. So we, we would smoke it and we would be so scared that we were going to go to prison. So, um, you know, I tried different things along the way, but um, so I worked in that office and then I got married because Joe asked me to marry him. And I don't, and he's a really nice man. So I, I don't want to talk bad about him because he's my friend today. He's married to Patty. He's not married to me anymore. And he's glad too. But um <laughs> And Patty was a nun. Patty had been in the convent and she left the convent. So he had to, you know, switch gears there. But anyway, um, so he, so um, 
Joe is a really nice man and he asked me to marry him. So that's the next thing, right? I guess, you know, I'll get married and have kids. And so we got married, a big Catholic wedding and his brother is a priest and he, he performed the ceremony. And so um, and I was good, you know, Joe asked me to marry him. And I mean, it's really hard for me to tell if somebody wants something, if you want something from me and I know you want something and you ask me, it's hard for me to say no. So, cause it might hurt your feelings. And um, you know, it's so, I just kind of went along with everything. So Joe and I got married and we had three kids by the time I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. We actually adopted. Um, I found out I couldn't, after I had that one pregnancy, I couldn't get pregnant. And so we, we um, were able to adopt through the county. I, we got twins right away and identical twins. I mean, later on, I kind of made a joke about when I quit drinking that I didn't know um, I had I, two babies. I thought I was just seeing double the whole time. <laughs> so, but they are identical. And you know, I think I was really beginning to suspect um, that I really had a drinking problem. And so I was very, very, very careful during this whole process. But I always knew when we had appointments and when they might come to my house to talk to us. And I knew how to be on good behavior. But there were times when I'd be, you know, thinking, are they looking in my window? And so I'd be in my own house, you know, hiding and sneaking drinks. Nobody was around, but they might be looking in my window, checking up on me. But we managed to um, adopt these three boys. The twins were two years old when we got the third one. When we when when I got the phone call that um, there was a baby for us, you know what I thought? No, you don't know, but I'll tell you. Um, I thought good because Joe's really mad at me because I got drunk last night and I made a big mess of something, and that was and that's where I was at that time. And I didn't really want to go get this baby because I already knew I couldn't quit drinking. And, but what am I gonna do? Say, no, we don't want that one because whatever. And so we, we went and got him and I was very sad that this little baby was gonna have me for a mother because I, I, I tried hard not to drink. And, um, you, know, I, I did, you know, I got pancreatitis and I was hospitalized, but nobody ever said anything to me about, do you drink too much or, you know, you're sick. It's normally has to do with alcohol or something like that. And um, I remember taking the twins to a, to a doctor's appointment one time. I always tried to make appointments early in the morning because I knew I wanted a drink as soon as Joe walked out the door in the morning because it, it made me feel better. And, um, but I could, you know, I had the boys um, in the doctor's office like a little later in the day and I had been drinking wine. I had to drink cheap stuff because we didn't have much money. And, um, and I could, you know, I could smell it we were in this little room waiting for the doctor to come in and all I was worried about, he's going to smell it. And then what's going to happen, you know, but everything I did was really planned around drinking or not drinking. But so we got the third one, the third baby. And that, and it was a year later before I made it in here. I really didn't know about Alcoholics Anonymous. It was, there were no treatment centers, maybe a couple treatment centers back then 
there was a little ad in this newspaper that came around our house, um, like a local thing. And I knew there was a little ad in there and it said, are you a woman with a drinking problem? Call this number. And I would just sit and stare at that and think, I wish I could call that number, but I don't know what's going to happen. So, um, you know, the day came when I just did one more thing. Um, I got drunk. You know, I would leave to go grocery shopping or something, pretend grocery shopping, because I already had the groceries in the trunk of the car. But um, from, you know, and, and I would just go out to drink and and I'd run into somebody and get a little carried away. And then Joe would have to come get me. And he had, you know, just one more time, I, we, I, I left the house with somebody after we were drinking all day. And um, he had to come get me and he had got the neighbor to watch the kids. And he was driving me home and he said, um, uh, if, you can, if you're not gonna quit drinking or if you don't quit drinking, you have to leave without the kids. And so I said, okay, because I could not quit drinking. I was gonna leave my family. And I went in the house and I picked up the phone. I was trying to get a hold of somebody to come get me because we only had one car. I didn't wanna take the car. And so Joe walked in the room and he said to me, I don't care where you go, but you can't run away from it. When I look back on this night, really, it's like divine intervention. I mentioned before that, you know, I had this God that I was afraid of, and that's no longer the God that I have in my life now. And I look back on that night and that there was definitely a God, a higher power, whatever you are comfortable calling it, that intervened. And Joe said that I don't care where you go, you can't run away from it. And I hung up the phone and I called his brother, the Catholic priest. He lived in Pennsylvania. I lived in California. We didn't have cell phones and he happened to be home. You know, and I look back again, it's all like a, like a mosaic or a puzzle that's put together. The pieces were put together for me that night. And I believe that I was given this very, very precious gift of sobriety. And that's why for all these years, I hang on to it. I've never gone away. I've never stopped doing what I've done from the very beginning. And it has served me very, very well. And um, I don't always do it willingly. And I don't always have great days or, you know, things are not whatever, you know, picture perfect in my life. But but um, I know this is way better than than not doing this deal. So um, so Joe said that um, he didn't care where I went. I called his brother. His brother happened to be home, which was unusual for a priest to be home. He's out serving people usually. And he answered the phone. And I said for the first time out loud to anybody, I can't quit drinking. And he said to me, you need, he said, I can't help you. And Catholic Church can't help you, but Alcoholics Anonymous can help you. And so it was a Sunday night. Joe got the neighbor to watch the kids. He got me in the car. I was very heavy. I drank a lot of beer and wine and I um, put on this bright orange polyester pantsuit and it zipped up the back and it was real tight. My hair was longer and I would dye it all the time because I'd be bored. I'd be locked in the house with my kids. I never wanted to go out. I didn't want them to go out. And so I would dye my hair and rearrange the furniture and drink. And so, but if you touched my hair, it would break off. And, um, and my face was always blotchy. I threw up a lot. I had broken blood vessels in my eyes quite a bit. I couldn't stop once I started. But so Joe got me in the car. He got the neighbor to watch the kids. And we started off to find this AA meeting. And um, it, it's luckily for me, 
or maybe part of this big plan. It started at 8.30 and, and it ended at 10. And so we got there a little bit before 10. And on the way there, I was telling Joe that, um, that I was gonna jump out of the car. I said, take me home. Um, you know, what are these people gonna do? Are they gonna chain me up? Are they gonna stay with me 24 hours a day? I can't quit drinking, take me home. I'll go tomorrow. And he just started going faster. And he got me to the meeting. We came in the back door, folding chairs, just like this, sat down. And I, I know now, I mean, somebody turned around and saw me and um, the orange thing that just came in that smells <laughs> of, of alcohol quite a bit. And um, they were nudging each other. And then um, they, the meeting was over like a minute later and they all came, there were like 30 people and they all came crowded around me and they had some, here's some literature, here's some coffee, here's my phone number. And I started throwing up, which I did all the time. And so I got some of them on their feet and you know what? They didn't really care. They were happy. They hadn't had a newcomer in a long time and they were happy. And so I ran out to the parking lot. They all came out to the parking lot. They stood around me. It's like they were singers and they were happy. And I, I couldn't stop once I started. So that night, these two ladies um, said, did I want to stay and talk to them? And I didn't want to stay. I was afraid. And um, I don't know what I was afraid of, but I went home. The next day I was just sitting in my living room, staring at the wall. I probably had the boys locked in their bedroom, which I did, you know, I, it, that's what I ended up doing quite often. I put a lock on their bedroom door because they wanted to go outside and play. And I had been drinking and I didn't want people to smell it. So um, I was just sitting in the living room, staring at the wall and there was a knock on the door and it was the two ladies from the night before. And you know what, this is something I miss so much, a good old fashioned 12 step call. We just don't seem to get those anymore. And um, these ladies, um, Joe must've told them where we lived and I, they didn't know me the night before. They didn't know if I would open the door, answer the door. They didn't know, but they took time out of their life to um, get together and come over to my house and 12 step me in my living room. And I can remember their faces clearly in my mind. They were very old, they were in their 50s. And um, <laughs> they, they, uh, they, their names were Aura and Austin. They were like angels. And one of them um, gave me her little 24 hour book and it was already used and I still have it. And I still read it every single day. And I think of those ladies in my living room. When those ladies told me their stories, it was almost like instant for me. I had never met you before. I didn't know what was wrong with me. I just thought that I was crazy and I was gonna end up in a mental institution. I had no idea what was wrong with me. And those ladies told me their stories and, it, and inside I felt hope for the first time. I really felt it. I felt happy. They took me to a meeting that night and I started on this journey. And um, I'll say quickly, I'll just, sometimes I don't say this and it doesn't really matter, but I drank once. I drank one half gallon of wine four months later. I'm not sure why I did. I went to meetings, I loved it. Um, but I, um, and I, I think I, I had a sponsor then. I think I was afraid to walk up to any of you. Would you be my sponsor? You might say no. But, you know, I think what happened is I got a hold of somebody's medication that didn't belong to me. And I convinced myself I could take it. 
because that's not in the book. And so I took some. <clears throat> and then, um, you know, just right after that, I said, well, you might as well just drink anyway. And, um, but it's since that time, and I got that half gallon of wine, I drove on the freeway. I threw the bottle out the window on the freeway. I wanted to go to jail and uh, to impress you with, you know, how bad it is and whatever. And I, um, nothing happened. I threw it out. I went home and I ended up waking up in my vomit one more time, face down. So here I am 51 years later. Um, I've never gone away from Alcoholics Anonymous. I've moved. I've had, um, Joe's not my husband anymore. And, I, and um, I've been married two more times after that. Um, everything that I've been through in my sobriety, um, I have learned a lesson from, and I can always look back on it and know that it was something that I needed to learn. I had no idea how emotionally immature I was and how ill-equipped I was to go out and function in this world. And I was afraid of everything and I didn't want to be afraid. I never knew I was afraid because I was kind of tough because of my brothers and I'd fight with people physically fight and I would swear. And I, and so, you know, I had I didn't like knowing that I had fear inside of me. And so, but with this program, with the steps, with sponsorship, you know, little by little, you know, we, I can take care of those things by, and by working our steps. And so my first sponsor, was a lady that came up to me then and she said she would be my sponsor. And I was so grateful to her because I didn't have the courage to walk up to a stranger. And so um, she, I did my fourth and fifth step with her when I was almost a year sober. And um, I, you know, we, we're great procrastinators. I think I am anyway. And so I finally finished it like the night before. My sponsor gave me a deadline. That's what they did. This is the day you're gonna do your fifth step. And so I got it written and then I got up in the morning and I thought there is no, absolutely no way I'm going to read this. The way I did my fourth step was I answered these seven questions like long form and it's very thorough, very in depth. And um, it was like in a notebook, it was a lot of stuff that I had written. And I thought there is no way I'm going to read this to another person, expose myself. And so I called her and I said, I'm not going to do it. And she tried to talk to me and I didn't want to talk to her. It was fear again. I don't want you to know the real me, what's going on inside, how all the, you know, these feelings that I have. I, I did everything I could in my life to not let you see that or me not feel it or something. And so I cried. I wanted to do it. I wanted to be sober. I wanted to be a part of you and a part of the group. And, and so I called my friends and I tried to get them to agree with me and nobody would. And so thank goodness. And, um, and thank goodness I had friends too. It's very important. I went to fellowship. We'd sit in coffee shops late at night, talk to each other, get to know each other. We told each other things that we would never tell our sponsor. And so it's a good thing that I will not yet anyway, you know, try it out on your friend. And so, um, you know, thank goodness I had friends. And, and so I ended up doing my fifth step. I ended up calling her back and doing my fifth step. That was one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life, but one of the best things that I've ever done for myself. And it just opened the door a little bit to, you know, little by little, step by step. Um, you know, for me getting better and healthy and in my mind and peaceful and, 
and, you know, becoming a useful person in, in this world. And God has given me the greatest gifts of sponsoring people. I didn't plan that. I don't know how to sponsor. Um, and, but my God just wants me to stay really busy and stay out of my own head. And I remember the first time somebody asked me to sponsor them and, and I was excited, but scared. So I told her, call me tomorrow at 930 or whatever it was. And I remember I got my coffee and my cigarettes, of course, then, and I sat down and I waited for the phone to ring and it didn't ring. And so I was disappointed, but then it occurred to me, I didn't think about myself getting ready for this woman to call me. I think it was one of the first times that I realized I didn't think about myself because that's all I ever thought about was me and what you think about me and what I should say to you and, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And so, so I do, you know, God's given me the gift of sponsoring people and all that. They, it's better. I mean, I'm the one benefiting, you know, we just share our lives with each other and guide each other, share our experience, strength and hope. That's all we do. I don't, there's no sponsorship handbook that I know of. And so, you know, I've always had a sponsor too. And then, um, and, oh, you know, over the years, my second marriage was pretty terrible and uh, for both of us. And I ended up probably around um, 12 years of sobriety. I sponsored women. I'd had some commitments in meetings and um, we were married about three years and I ended up running away from home. The kids had gone to live with their dad we, we agreed he really wanted them, he and his wife. And um, that's a whole different thing. But um, I ended up, I tried and tried and tried to make that marriage work and to fix him and make him happy. And I almost lost my mind at 12 years of sobriety, really. And I bought a one-way ticket to Hawaii. Two of my brothers were living in Hawaii. So if you're going to have a breakdown, go there. It's real pretty. And so, um, you know, but I went um, and I got off the plane and where did I go? Alcoholics Anonymous. I met all the alcoholic people in Hawaii and I got involved and I did a lot of writing. I stayed there for eight months and I did all this writing because I was blaming my husband for the whole thing. And I'm not gonna get better until I find my part in things. And so it, I've always, um, writing has always been really therapeutic for me. So I did all this writing and I came back and I went back to California and um, I landed at LAX and I had worked in Hawaii. I had three jobs and, um, and I went to AA and I lived with one of my brothers and his family. But I, I got off the plane at LAX and I had $5 in my wallet and I had no car. So I became homeless after I got sober. I had no place to go. And I had, because um, we were getting a divorce, I had $5, no car, and I had to learn how to accept help from people. That was really, really hard for me. The people offered to have me come and stay with them. And I really didn't want to do it. I'm uncomfortable. I didn't just get comfortable overnight. And I'm still not comfortable a lot of the time, but I can work through it now and recognize it and all that kind of stuff. But so I, um, you know, little by little had to get my life together and get a job and get a car and, and get going again. And the thing was, though, I had these good friends that I had, you know, known my whole sobriety. And when I was standing there with $5, I thought, what have you done? You fell into a big black hole again, Nancy. You're always messing up. Look at your friends. They're not, you know, they're working in law offices and they're doing good. And, you know, I can't do that because that's not my path. 
and I have my own lessons to learn in my sobriety. And so um, they're still my good friends, you know, today. And uh, we all live in Seal Beach Leisure World. So, <laughs> but I want to tell you this, and then I'm going to be done. I have to tell you this. Um, I did spend a lot of time over the years comparing myself to others, and I never quite measured up. And I wanted what you had, and I wanted to look like you looked, and I wanted, you know, just and not accepting myself as I was and not loving myself as I am. So um, in 2014, my third husband and my very best husband, Ed, um, passed away. We had 27 wonderful, sober, happy, funny years together. Um, we were living in Minnesota. And, um, but about a year after he passed away, I opened my mail one day and there was a letter in the mail with the return address from a, a man's name that I did not know. And I opened the letter and started reading it. It said, this letter is about something that happened in November of 1960. And like, my heart is like pounding, like, oh my God, what did I do? And, um, you know, I don't want to upset you or, or cause you any pain or anything like that. I want to thank you for what you did and you'd be proud of me and all this stuff. And I didn't get it for a while. Then I finally realized the letter was from the baby that I gave up for adoption and he was, I mean, he was born in 1960 and this is 2014, I get that letter. So the end of that, cause I don't wanna run over is that um, we, he invited me to email him, call him, whatever or not. And it was the most beautiful letter. And so we emailed each other for six months and I was in Minnesota and he was actually um, living in California. But after six months, we made a plan, he and his wife, were vacationing in Utah and they invited me to join them. And so I prayed about it and I was really scared, but I flew into Utah and I got off the plane and um, he was at the bottom of the escalator and he had this beautiful bouquet of flowers. And I had a little sterling silver baby rattle I had engraved for him and said, love your first mom. And it had his, his sobriety date, his, his birth date on it. <laughs> and um, you know what? So here, you know, but this is the best part. It sticks. I was going down the escalator. I was halfway down and I, and I knew what he looked like by that time. And it occurred to me inside that I didn't make up anything, any story to tell him. And he's my son. And um, I didn't make up a story about my life uh, and I didn't, you know, buy any new clothes. I didn't really do anything different. It occurred to me that I really love myself as I am now. And, and that what a gift. And that's just because of sticking around here and plowing through the hard times and um, just, you know, I am who I am. If I, if I, you know, want to be you all the time, I'm, I feel like I'm not honoring God because God created us. We're all, we all have our own things. But anyway, he and I, his mother, the mother he had um, passed away when he was in his twenties. I'm his mom. Um, we really love each other a lot. He and his wife, my daughter-in-law were just staying with me last weekend. And like the weekend before they were in town, they actually live in, in um, Utah now. And we spend a lot of time together. And um, could I have ever made this happen? I don't think so. I thought of him over the years and I thought, just leave him alone. He has a mother and a father, leave him alone. So what a gift that was. And um, so I'm done and you know, thank you so much. It's been great being with you tonight, thanks. Woo!